So welcome back to the Birdie Bug Pod, episode 24. <coughs> hey, we're on time this week. We almost weren't. But we are. We are. I think we are on time. Yep, and we're back on schedule. We're back on track. That's good, isn't it? So, go on, what were you going to say? I was going to say, we've got a slightly different one. Uh, I think it's been a it's been a while since we've done... Oh, no, it hasn't. I was going to say it's been a while since we've done something other than a species-specific, but we did the introductions episode. Yes. Uh, but it's another non-species-specific episode today. We're looking at invasive species, both just general non-native ones that are harmless and not causing any damage to our ecosystem, and actually properly invasive species, those that do cause harm to wildlife and human health and economies. Yeah, it's actually a really fascinating subject because there's dollops of stuff to (laughs) talk about. It could have been... um, I know we say this about every episode because actually we could make every episode three episodes. Yeah, I mean, we're not that concise anyway. But this one was really interesting because I've learned things that I didn't realise were non-native species for a start. Yeah, I mean... They're not all invasive species, but there are something like more than 3,000 non-native species in Britain alone. Yeah, and I mean, when it comes to the actual invasive ones, each of them could probably have their own episode. Oh, definitely. Um, But we thought we'd cover it as a... As a general topic, maybe we will pick invasive species in the in the future to dive in and do a proper sort of deeper look at. But today is a introduction to the topic of so, invasive so non-native species. What are non-native species? They are species found hold outside. Up. Oh, no. Hang hold on. up. What about catch up? Crikey, we've got to do catch up first, haven't we? Do catch up first. Sorry, that was very carried. remiss of me. I got a bit carried away. Right. Catch up. You're even more of an RSPB volunteer now. <laughs> Somehow. I, I'm not sure I've got any time left in the week to do, what well, even make a cup of tea at the moment. I applied to be um, a species protection site ranger at my favourite RSPB nature reserve, which is Pagham Harbour. Which, I mean, that site gets a lot of mentions on the podcast, and I imagine catch-up might be even more Pagham-dominated. Yeah, it might well be, because uh, I applied for a volunteer role, uh, which cropped up, um, and uh, got uh, accepted to do the job and I'm I think my induction day is on Monday which is really quite exciting and what that involves really is really just protecting the site and the obviously the wildlife on the site making sure that people who are actually walking and enjoying the nature reserve are observing the regulations and and looking after the wildlife and not letting their their dogs run wild and and I imagine um, also helping them know what they've seen and of course and helping them enjoy them. yeah enjoy their walk and and give them some info on what they're actually looking at or surrounded by I mean I um, think we can we would both quite happily say that all of the volunteer rangers on RSPB sites that we've ever come across have been so enthusiastic helpful and just lovely yeah, I've got a lot to live up to and actually so, so you can be one of those people that yeah, people go home and be like he was so helpful and it's um at the moment it's for obviously going into winter and there are obviously um a lot of birds that come in and over winter here on the reserves like pagham um particularly the waterfowl and the brent geese and all sorts of birds come in at uh, this time of year and they need protecting as much as you know you often think of reserves just looking after and protecting the sites when birds are nesting and of course that's absolutely crucial but in the winter as well these birds are coming over to feed up basically and get get strong again for um you know for their migration so it's a really important time 
Are you also covering Medmory? I mean, I'm covering Medmory yeah, as well. Yeah, it sort of comes a pair, don't they? Um, Medmory's a really big area as well. I haven't actually well. been there yet. Yeah, no, Medmory's... Medmory's in, if, you've never, if you don't know about Medmory down on the south coast, it's an incredible... It was an incredible project. It's the largest... Um, it's the largest coastal reorganisation project in the UK, actually. So... Um, they they had to do it because it, it uh, reduced flooding risk and there was a huge flooding risk around there and it was a massive project and a, a fascinating video on the project actually on the RSPB um, Medbury site so um, the scale of it was insane. We can always stick that in the show notes under a little yeah, if you want to learn about the site that you might be patrolling. The scale of the the project was absolutely insane. They brought over tons and tons of. Huge rocks from Norway on barges. And honestly, it's a great video to watch and a fascinating thing. And, of course, that was back in 2014 when they started that project. And when you see it from a drone um, video above, it just looked like a, uh, you know, there were diggers in and it just looked like a big cleared space. And now it's full of reed beds and, and uh, waterways and wildlife. And it is a fantastic place. So I'm privileged to be able to help look after that site. Uh, Honoured and privileged, so I'm really looking forward to it. With the title of Ranger, I'm hoping you'll dress up as Aragorn, as you prefer. Well, I thought I might put a cowboy hat on or something, but anyway. So, yes, so that's really my catch-up. I'm doing that, but I'm also doing another BTO Bird survey volunteer job, but I won't <laughs> at tell the you same about time it. that your actual wetland yeah. of sort of waterfowl survey. Yeah, I did started. my first my first webs survey, my wetland bird survey on last Sunday, just before great. a torrential downpour. Yes, if I remember correctly. Indeed. Anyway, I'll I'll stop now because what have you got? Uh, I haven't been out doing any photography, uh, but I have been out quite a lot by rivers. Uh, I did mention last week. That, are, that the Rivers Trust Big River Watch was happening. So there's another another shameless plug um, for for the Rivers Trust. But that weekend has obviously gone, and it yeah it went brilliantly. Uh, more people took part in it than I think we could have really hoped for. Yeah, definitely. And so far, the reviews and, and and everybody who's who did take part has been really positive about the app and spending time by the river and everything like that. So at the moment, it's sort of we're waiting for the data to be analyze so we can sort of talk about actually what it showed but if you did miss it the app is open year round so you download the big river watch app and you can go and survey your local river but yeah i spent a lot of time in bath and bournemouth and whilst not big river watch related also goddleming by rivers doing some filming well, it's got the river way going through it i think yeah Godalming. um which is actually where i was mm. and in bath i saw two kingfishers which was lovely because they seem to be popping up a lot more for me now they used to be quite a rare sight and I, I seem to be seeing them everywhere so and it's a really easy nice. thing to do it's i mean a 15 minute walk or a 15 minute um observational part of your walk on down your local river and the app's really easy to follow yeah um, i mean i really enjoyed doing it i'm actually. really pleased and, and i think yeah. you know quite a few people from from the family went out and and did it yeah i did too um <laughs> but uh yeah, obviously, I, once again, this is not a Rivers Trust podcast and I'm not here as an employee, but it is what I've spent the last two, well, sort of month working on um, with, with the rest of the comms team. And it's just been a really exciting time and it's quite a fun thing to be part of. So, Damn it, I think we should do a Rivers Trust podcast. Uh, there is one. <laughs> I think we should do a whole episode on on rivers yeah we can hey, do let's that. do that but the yeah i mean there is a there is a rivers trust podcast it oh, is yeah, not okay. this podcast <laughs> and, and these views are my own not that of, of the organization um that being said 
The Rivers Trust will probably get another plug later on. In my this views episode. are your own as well. <laughs> um, but yes, that's what I've been been up up to really. Um, it's been nice to call it work and actually be out of the house by rivers quite often behind a camera. It's a lovely so, thing to do. Uh, yeah, it's been good. But and really important, all that data, as we've said so many times, that citizen science data is absolutely invaluable. Yeah, um, and it's fun to be. We we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about various citizen science initiatives and it's quite fun to be part of one definitely and be yeah. the other side of it yeah. and trying to organize and get the data rather than uh, be the person i mean i've gone and done surveys as well but not that's not where i'm coming from i will say to get a project up and running and an app developed all within about two and a half months is absolutely it was insane. yeah and i can't really take too much the credit that is our our new campaigns lead uh, who can take the credit for that but it was quite an undertaking uh but yeah brilliant that's, been, that's all good, good stuff um, we better crack on, then. Yeah, we? we we'll crack on. So, as I mentioned, we are talking about non-native species. Specifically, we're really delving into invasive non-native species. Um, so, I guess we should probably define the difference. Yeah, go on then. You 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 carry on with that. Okay, I'll carry on with it. Fine. Uh, so, there are currently about well, actually, over three thousand plants and animals uh, in Britain that are known as non-native species. And these are really simply just animals and plants that are not natively found here. So they've been introduced from somewhere else in the world, whether that's deliberately or accidentally. The point is they would not have been found here without some kind of human intervention. The difference between a non-native species and an invasive non-native species is the latter is normally one or has to be one that causes some sort of threat. So there are quite a few species, and I'm sure we'll mention some, that are here because of humans, but they don't really cause any problems. You know, they are, they've sort of integrated themselves within the ecosystem. As far as we know, they're not causing any problems. Some might need a bit more research, but they're not damaging the ecosystem. They're not damaging the economy. They're not causing problems for human health. So they've effectively just become part of our... Shall I give you a really good example yeah, of that? Give, give us an example. and barley. Yes. Not native species to the UK, both came, well, I think wheat came over from the Middle East, we're going back quite a while, and barley from Asia and North Africa, and sheep. Oh, yeah, of course. Sheep, sheep. are not native to Britain or Northern Europe, actually, and they were introduced about 6,000 years ago from Asia. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll, once the definitions are sort of sorted, we'll talk about how they end up actually getting here, um, but that's yeah. very much deliberately <laughs> introduced so, for, so for agriculture. Absolutely. So there's about... 10 to 15 percent of them become invasive yes so um, and so the key part of, of the invasive non-native species is that they're causing harm to our native wildlife environment and often also human health and or economy and there are a lot of examples of this um yes and a lot you probably will have heard of and Japanese knotweed is a typical example. Yeah, no, carry on I mean, with. we've actually spoken about a few already uh, in different episodes. So if you have listened to, or if you haven't, you should go back and listen to our water vole episode, um, yeah. the UK's fastest declining mammal. And a key part of that decline is because of the introduction of the American mink. Yeah. So the mink is an invasive non-native species brought over for fur farming, if I remember that correctly. Yeah. And they sort of decimated our water vole. Pretty much wiped them out. Yeah, because they were... A, well, a very good predator of, of the waterfall. So, and I think what well, we've also spoken about. I think it was a crayfish. Yeah, we spoke about the signal crayfish, yeah. which was also brought over to, for essentially aquaculture. They were going to be farmed and for food, uh, but they brought with them a disease that kills our native 
white claw crayfish, and again has sort of resulted in And also in a, their competition for food. Yes, which and, I'm sure we'll also yeah. get, get onto. Yeah. So they've actually popped up a few times in uh, in a different different episodes, but they're getting a bit of a spotlight on them today. And like you mentioned, 10 to 15% of non-native species are classed as invasive. So that is quite a lot when there's over 3,000 yeah. non-native species. And this species. is obviously a global issue. It's not just confined yes. to Britain. It's a, it's all UK, the UK. It's a, it's a global issue. It happens all over the world. And in fact, um, it, because it causes such chaos in you know in a in a balanced sort of ecosystem and it does cause chaos it's i think one of the biggest threats to global biodiversity yes i think it is in the top um, after top habitat loss apparently yeah uh, to be honest they often go hand in hand as well um maybe not to the point of like decimating an entire rainforest but they're very damaging to quite niche habitats that other native species would rely quite heavily on uh, and I've got examples of that as well. Yes, and of course, we're not just talking about animals. We're talking about plants and fungi yep. and all sorts of things, aren't we? So it's not just... Just you know, species. But, yeah, it is... Um, it is uh, again, it's, it's so widespread um, and there are so many examples of it, but uh, we'll try and be as... We'll try and be yeah, as... I think it's going to take on a relatively similar structure to our introductions or reintroductions episode where we'll do a bit of a general covering of the topic the problems uh, of invasive species etc and then i think we've got a few not necessarily case studies but examples with a little bit more detail to to delve into um yeah the, i think the other part that people often forget is the impact of the economy yes uh, that invasive non-native yeah. species can have whether that's through the cost it takes to manage them, so the cost of actually running projects to try and eradicate and, and keep an eye on them, or they all, they also do damage to things like forestry plantations or yeah. crops um, or fish stocks or other things yeah. that we are farming. So they can actually have a direct impact on a, on a food chain or, or something like that, or food production, rather. Uh, I think we both have a stat for the, the estimated cost, and I think they're slightly different. Um, well, I think actually I'd got a cost for just um, the annual cost of trying to deal with Japanese knotweed ah, alone okay. was something like one and a half billion in this country what, per year because yeah. it's such a it's such an invasive plant. And it's so hard to actually eradicate, and it does so much damage. Yeah, and I, I think I've got that. It's an costs the UK an estimated four billion a year. Yeah. In damage, just not that's not Japanese knotweed, that is just invasive species in general cost that amount um, to the UK yeah. economy. So that sort of puts a number on the scale of the damage that they can cause. And like I say, a lot of that will also be the cost of trying to manage them. Yeah. Um, but I guess we should probably talk about how they actually get here. <laughs> how do we acquire non native and invasive non native species? Non native species can sort of find their way into a new area through a variety of means, um, both intentionally and accidentally. So intentionally, we've mentioned already, uh, agriculture is a big one, whether it's a species that we actually want to farm, be it a plant or an animal. Also pest control, um, sometimes uh, not very well thought out pest control, the cane toad in Australia being the famous one that was introduced to be a, 
a solution to a problem. It was supposed to hunt uh, or, or consume an insect pest that was damaging crops. Completely misjudged the the diff the habitats and essentially the insect lived further up the plant than the, the toad did. So it didn't do that job, and it's now become a massive problem in Australia. So it doesn't always work, but again, that is an intentional introduction of a non-native species. Um, plant-wise, things like well, plants and trees again can be introduced for forestry and crops. If you think of the uh, big forest plantations up in Scotland, very rarely are they native trees for timber. Yeah, I mean, there's been some really devastating examples of that. For example, ash dieback. Yeah. Ash dieback is a was a devastating invasive um, fungus, um, and that came in from Asia, and it was probably brought in just on imported ash um, wood from yeah. Asia. And the spores from that then just caused absolute chaos, and it, it, it was so dramatic. And, in fact, we st- I still see there's a, there's a little um, bit of river that I walked down in Arundel, um, down towards the Arran, and that's got a, a, a lovely population of ash trees. And the other day it was all cordoned off and um, they were having to deal with ash die back there. So it's it's an ongoing problem. Yeah. Um, um, and once it's here, you know, once it's that very hard to eradicate. virus or disease is here, it's very difficult and, and it um, can have absolutely catastrophic um, uh, results and outcome for for various species, native species. Yeah, like and that. I mean, that's a really good example of an accidental introduction yeah. and it is typically, they, they hitch a ride on other things that yeah. we're bringing over. It's, it's important to note that a lot uh, of invasive or certainly a lot of non-native species are aquatic and this is normally because of the ballast water in ships obviously they take on water uh, where in their port yeah. as a ballast and then they empty it once they get to port again so you're taking water from your starting point potentially traveling across the world and then emptying all that water somewhere else and inevitably there's going to be organisms within that so that's a huge contributor to uh, non-native species uh, and you'll actually find that Aquatic, especially freshwater um, aquatic uh, habitats are very vulnerable to invasive species. And islands, islands are also very vulnerable. And this is normally because when populations of species evolve, if there's a big barrier between the next population, an island is typically a big barrier because you've got a huge chunk of water between the mainland, they evolve this very niche or very um, sort of uh, separated uh, habitat and ecology and so if you suddenly introduce an animal that hasn't evolved with those uh, native island creatures, they won't have developed any sort of defence if it's a predator or if it's a new disease, it's not yeah, going to be prevalent. Disease, so, they're obviously bringing new diseases yeah. that they're not immune to. And so the yeah. genetic diversity on in an island population is going to be a lot less uh, diverse than it would be on a mainland where you've got uh, genetic uh, spread essentially yeah. and so they're very vulnerable to introductions of any kind a really good example of that in Britain actually is the grey squirrel grey squirrel came in and actually had squirrel pox that yes. that was um, immune to but the red squirrel wasn't and it, it had devastating effect on red squirrel population apart from the fact obviously the competition for food and grey squirrels are a bit more are bigger and a bit more aggressive, but things that's a really good example of, of an animal bringing a disease in that yeah. that that could cope with, but the the uh, native, the native species on the island couldn't. Yeah, so. just exactly the same with the signal crayfish yeah. with with crayfish plague, um, squirrel pox. It's a similar sort of situation. I didn't actually realise that grey squirrels also impact woodland composition by stripping back bark yeah. and things like that. So we always think of them as sort of the, the main reason for red squirrel 
decline, but they have other impacts as well. And they are a perfect example. I mean, rodents are obviously famous for their breeding capabilities, yeah. but grey squirrels are a perfect example of how difficult it is to eradicate because there's yeah. been all sorts of projects to try and reduce the grey squirrels and bring back the red squirrels, and none of them have worked really apart from little islands like yeah. uh, Anglesey, yeah. for example, because if you are able to go and kill every grey squirrel on a small island okay, there's a bridge across it, but it's a lot less likely that they're going to suddenly find their way back to Anglesey. So it's a lot easier to clear yeah. them all out and then make sure there's space for the red squirrels. And another threat, of course, is hybridisation as well, isn't it? So, you know, a species that's capable of breeding with another related but distinct species. So I think you had an example of that, which we're going to talk about a bit later with the yeah. ruddy duck, for example. So, you know, that unique genetic diversity of one species gets hybridized and eventually the the original species becomes extinct so yeah so when when you've got a, a invasive non-native species we've covered obviously predation being uh, a main issue the mink predating on the water vole uh, we've mentioned bringing diseases being yeah. gray squirrel or signal crayfish we've also mentioned the resource competition gray squirrels typically outcompete the nice uh, rather cute red squirrels the hybridization one that you've just mentioned is a little bit I know less commonly talked about or less well known, and I might as well jump into my my yeah, little yeah. example of the ruddy duck. Uh, so, the ruddy duck is a, is native to North America, but it was brought to the UK in sort of nineteen thirties or forties um, for just captive wildfowl uh, collections. Really, it was just a, a collector's item. Um, but as is often the case with non well, actually not just non native but captive animals, they did escape. Uh, it's not always very easy to keep birds unless you put them in a proper cage. And they actually bred for the first time in the wild, in the UK anyway, in 1952. And by 2000, the UK population numbered 6,000 birds. So they are now pretty well established yeah. here. Now, the hybridization issue is not actually a problem in the in the UK necessarily, but it has the potential to impact a neighbouring population. So you have a very cute little duck called the white-headed duck. And it's the only stiff tail duck to occur naturally in Europe. And it's had a huge conservation problem. Uh, they've declined severely over the last century um, from 100,000 to fewer than 10,000 in Spain. So Spain is now, which I'll go on to, is a little bit of it's a nice little resident population that's doing quite well. But in the last century, they've, they've really struggled. So, and this would potentially be a nice topic for an episode if we didn't cover it here, Spain put on a, a real recovery program to try and protect and manage the, white, uh, the white-headed duck. And it's, it's been an incredible success to the point where it's almost uh, like, a, like the red kite is yeah. over here. It's become sort of that poster boy for yeah. successful conservation projects. And so the Spanish population has recovered immensely. Uh, to the point where in 1977 there were just 22 birds and it's now up to 2,500. Um, so just in case it wasn't clear, that decline from 100,000 to fewer than 10,000 was across Europe uh, in Spain. They were down to just 22 birds in 1977. Wow. And yeah, the, the success of this conservation project is is incredible. And because of that, a bit like the red kite in the UK, they have actually they have become that post boy, that symbol for conservation. And so they're a really good argument when organizations are putting up a, a new project or a funding application or something like that for actually achieving protection of wetland habitats or when they're trying to combat hunting regulations stuff like that the 
the needs of the white-headed duck and the value of that duck is a real asset yeah. to conservation projects. Now, the problem is ruddy ducks quite happily interbreed with white-headed ducks. And they, they produce a fertile offspring, so that's a, a hybrid that can then go on to reproduce of its own. And this is happening in Spain. Now, ruddy ducks are actually a lot more promiscuous in their mating behaviour. And if their population was to increase in Spain, there's a real danger that those hybrids would increase yeah. and start showing fewer and yeah. fewer white-headed duck characteristics to the point where that genetic uniqueness that makes up the white-headed duck is gone forever. So they're effectively extinct uh, within, within that region. Now, as the ruddy duck population increases in the UK, there's a real risk that they may migrate. Can I give you a really good statistic just yeah, to give cut me a in statistic. about the extinction of bird species due to invasive non-native species? And this is across the world. I'm just going to throw this little, in, this little stat in and then you carry on with your ruddy duck because it gives an example of what you just said about extinction there. Invasive non-native native species have been involved in the extinction of 68 out of the 135 bird species lost in the wild globally over the last 500 years. I mean, that so, is quite a statistic. Which is a big statistic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so the ruddy duck is a is a real is a threat, possible example of that for the white-headed duck. Isn't yeah, it? and it's just I think it's it's a really interesting example because people will always think that it's going to be a a disease like we've mentioned with yeah. squirrels or just normally people go oh it's out competing it's done better than, than the native species but you wouldn't think that the ruddy duck mating with white-headed ducks producing offspring that eventually to the point of there being no normal or, or pure white-headed yeah. ducks existing anymore it's a really weird way for the animal to go extinct yes and we often think i mean we talked we did a whole episode about the curlew and the fact if we don't do something about curlew the habitat for the curlew and trying to save the curlew it will possibly be extinct in the UK in 20 years. But you always think of that as a habitat loss thing. So that hybridisation process that can effectively create extinction yeah, of a species is really interesting, isn't it? And not one that I think we often think no, about. Absolutely. And to be fair, maybe I should have found a statistic. I don't know if there is a statistic on there. It's, I don't know how common it is for the reproduction of a fertile hybrid to the point where it would cause extinction. I don't know how common that situation is. I no, don't know. it'd be interesting to find out of those out of those sixty-eight. Yeah, how many out of the hundred and thirty-five? How many was a result of hybridisation, or whether it was just predation, disease that that yeah. non-native species brought in? It's that's. It, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to look into that and see um, if I can find any data on that. I won't delve too much more into the ruddy duck, other than the fact that it would be a real shame. Not only is it obviously always a shame if we if we lose a species, but the amount of effort projects have gone to to recover the Spanish population from just 22 birds to two and a half thousand for that to then be jeopardised yeah. by an invasive species, yeah. especially if it ends up being a contribution from the UK because our population ends up sort of going across to Europe. It would be a real, a real shame. And it, I think we've spoken so many times now about the fact that yeah, normally we need to conserve habitats rather than species, but those conservation symbols, those poster boys for good projects are so valuable because it's a lot easier to go to perhaps less conservation-minded people and be like, we need to save this adorable duck or we need to save this magnificent red kite rather than being, oh, we need to save this patch of wetland. Yeah. It's a lot easier yeah. to be like, we don't want to lose the species and it's on the brink. And so having these examples are, are so valuable. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting 
it's an interesting uh, example of, of hybridization. And I think we have covered the the main problems caused by invasive non-native species um, being predation, competition, disease, and hybridization. Yeah. Um, now, would you like to dive into some invasive species, or did you want to start off with some non-native but not invasive examples? Uh, did I mention sheep? I didn't you did mention, mention sheep, sheep and you mentioned wheat and barley. Yeah. Um, I had a couple. Go on. You, I've, I've obviously mentioned a couple, so you crack on. Yeah, and I mean, there's not <clears throat> too much. Of, like, they don't really work as a case study because you can't go into, oh, they've caused X amount of damage because the, the whole point is that they're not native, but they're sort of integrated yeah. into our ecosystem. There are a few that I'm actually quite fond of. Um, for example, tube web spiders or Suggestria. You love a spider, don't you? Yeah, I do. And Suggestria florentina, which is called the tube web spider, is not native to the UK, but it's quite an impressive spider. It's one of the few that sort of get big enough to be able to administer a bite in this country. And they make these big, as their name uh, suggests, tubes. um, And they have sort of big, very noticeable stranded uh, strands of web that come out. And that's essentially how they know if there's a prey item at the entrance of their cave. I've got quite a few around my house in Southampton, which I was really excited about because I'd never seen one before. Um, But they've actually got green, I hesitate to say green fangs, but green chalicera, which is where the the fangs are held, uh, that sort of fluoresce under torchlight. So it's quite a, a cool spider to see. But they're actually, they've been here for a while, don't seem to have caused any real problems that we know of to the ecosystem. In fact, actually, there's some mention of them being quite useful as a pest control. Yeah. And so there's even potential benefits to non-native species. Uh, obviously, every year you see in the news false widow spiders. Now, not, not every year, you see it every other week. You could argue. Yeah. Somebody's it, been bitten by a false Yeah, lost their widow. legs somehow. Yeah. It's always rubbish. Yeah. You could argue may be invasive because of the threat to human life. Okay, none, they're never going to kill you. There's no real threat to human life, but they do bite and they cause fear. So I guess there is an argument to call it invasive. But as far as threats to wildlife, as far as we know, again, not, yeah. not yet classed as invasive. And a spider that I'm also quite fond of, even if it's not meant to be here. And one more spider is the wasp spider, which is black and yellow striped. Creates a little zigzag in its web called a stabilimentum, I think. Josh can correct me on that because he did a dissertation on it. Uh, but they're just stunning spiders, really big, yellow, black stripes, and they're stunning. And okay, not native, but I really like seeing them. Yeah, so, I don't think I've ever seen one of those. But. Uh, you see them quite a lot down here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there are the three spiders that shouldn't really be here, um, don't seem to be causing any harm. Uh, we also have scorpion. Well, like we said, out of those 3,000, 10 to 15% become invasive and are creating a problem and the rest are have just integrated yeah. in and, and are not causing an issue so there's but one thing i'd like to mention because you just completely overshadowed the fact i said we have a scorpion in the uk <laughs> i did sort of just that did sort of wash over me a little didn't it so if you ever and i haven't done this yet but it is on my list of things i'd like to do scorpion in the exactly. uk that's the enthusiasm i want here please <laughs> um yellow european yellow tailed scorpion um euscorpius flavicordis I, I don't believe that uh came over accidentally on boats and there's a little population that lives in essentially the cracks of walls normally around the docks in kent Oh, okay. That is where they've got a bit of stronghold. And I would like to go there with my fluorescent UV torch and see if I can find them. Is that the only way you can find them? It's, well, they're quite little and they're hidden in cracks. Yeah. So I think it's probably the, the best bet. But what I wanted to mention is, okay, they're, non, they're not invasive or classed as invasive yet. But what has sort of been recorded and is certainly predicted, and this is true for a lot of non-native and also invasive species, <laughs> that as climate change progresses and our 
temperatures and weather becomes slightly altered, um, perhaps slightly more Mediterranean at times. A lot of these species that wouldn't normally survive in the UK climate are actually doing a lot better. And so for a long time, these scorpion populations have been really isolated, just literally in the docks. But as it's getting warmer, there is records that they're starting to spread further inland because the weather is a little bit more accommodating to them. So there is a potential for non-invasive species to become an invasive species. Yes, we didn't mention, we should have mentioned that earlier on, actually, how... Um, they can spread. How climate change will could have a real impact yeah. on invasive species and, yeah. and the effect of that. And so I think it's just, it's a note that it doesn't, just because they're not classed as invasive currently, doesn't mean that they won't become invasive if they start becoming a lot more prevalent. I'm not saying it's that will be the case for the scorpion, but it's a... The fact that they are starting to move inland sort of shows the ability for climate change to increase the range of these non-native species. Yeah, so, I mean, a, a, typical, a typical example of that that you might not even have thought about is that that changing climate can shorten or lengthen the seasons yeah. in the UK. And there's evidence that butterflies will emerge earlier during a warm spring and summer. And if those are invasive butterflies, then... Those changing time frames means different plants are being eaten by insects during different times of the year. Yeah. So it's having it's an all, effect on that ecosystem yeah, it's all very and that balance that we, that we have in, in, our, you know, in, yeah. in the UK. So it's little things like that you don't even really think about, no, that, and, that cause of an imbalance of the ecosystem. Yeah, and it would be, and again, whether or not this is, will ever come to light, I don't know, but it would be interesting, you know, of the 3,000-ish species we have of the what was it? It's ten to fifteen are invasive. Yeah. So, of the remaining percentage, will any of them end up becoming classes? Yeah, so you might find that percentage on. increasing yeah. because of climate change, I guess. Um, but this is the sort of thing where research is really important. And I know I've rambled on about non-native but not invasive species for a little bit. But the last one I was going to mention is the Ascupulane snake, which is huge, especially by UK snake standards. Obviously, it's not native; it's a European snake and one of the longest. And there are two populations in the UK, both escaped from zoos. One, one is up in North Wales, where I went to university, and uh, I never actually got to see one. But they escaped from the North Wales Mountain Zoo. And actually, there's another population in, I think it's Camden in London, that escaped from London Zoo. Oh, really? um, and I say, I did never actually got to see one up in, in North Wales. But there are projects going on by actually some of my, my old lecturers who are, who are running PhD projects and research into the impact the Ascupulane snake might be having on local wildlife. It's predicted that probably not much because they're rodent eaters and probably feeding mainly on rats. And so it's probably not going to cause a huge imbalance. Would it have anywhere. any impact on the resident snake well, population like adders? And That I think is part of the research. Yeah. And so I, I had a little look for papers and currently I most... I had a few adders up in... Yeah, lots up in um, Anglesey. Anglesey. Um, currently I remember look, Yolo Williams doing a whole... Um, uh, program all about that and where he was yeah. filming them up and in I did lots of like uh, field work modules yeah. on them uh, but they're yeah currently a lot of the papers that have been published or the research is on ways of monitoring them so they're using like the radio telemetry and stuff yeah. to actually find them so I think a few have been found in people's attics um, <laughs> so that currently a lot of the research is like how do we monitor the populations but it'll be interesting to see whether they are having uh, some sort of negative impact they've been there for a while though and they are quite surprisingly big i think if you if you do see one compared to the uk snakes they are, they're a big snake um but yeah it's another another reptile that people might not know is sort of lurking in two parts of the uk that's probably enough of the non 
native but not invasive species. Yeah. But I got a bit excited about it. Yeah. Spiders all, it's and snakes fascinating. and scorpions. Absolutely fascinating. Um, so we'll delve into just a couple of the actually, the, the properly invasive species and some that have caused some rather large problems. As I've been chatting for however long, I'll let you take the floor with a with an example, a little case study, if you like. Well, I'm initially going to talk about the ring-necked parakeet because it's one that you probably don't even realise is here in unless you're in London. But I just wanted to, before I do that, I just wanted to give you an example of just how uh, invasive a plant and can be, and how, or a species can be, and it happens to be a plant, and the impact of that plant. Um, that can have on the on the uh, ecosystem. Japanese knotweed. I'm sure everybody's heard of it. It's yeah, pops one up of the most invasive things. But what I found f- absolutely incredible is that Japanese knotweed in the UK came from one single plant, and it was introduced in 1850. I think he was a Dutchman, and he was he had no idea, of course, of the environmental impact of this plant, and he brought it in for commercial sale and botanical cultivation, I think. Um, But what I found quite fascinating is that Kew Gardens, you know, one of our most prestigious um, uh, botanical gardens, um, they were quite instrumental in selling the plants for residential garden use. And then, as as I've got written down here, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, like when you think of gardening, how many plants that people have in their garden that aren't native because we bring them over because they look nice they smell nice a lot of them don't cause yeah. any harm but so many non-native species have been brought over for pretty gardens essentially yes and and but nobody could realize the impact of this plant i mean it, it's it's almost indestructible it can be burnt they use acid they you can't dig it up and get rid of it it can regenerate from the a, a rhizome the size of a thumbnail it will regenerate into a massive plant. I mean, plant. it's an incredible plant. It, grow, it can grow through pavements. Um, yeah. It is unbelievably uh, invasive and uh, a massive problem in this country. But So that's just a typical example, though. Of that was just one plant that was brought over, and now it is a global problem, Japanese yeah. knotweed, and how that has sort of escalated I mean, it is into one of those a global that, problem. Okay, if you, if you can overlook the fact that it, it literally damages pavements properties and underground structures the fact that it can do that and it's a plant is incredible like well, the resilience it is Im- amazing it species. grows on the side of a volcanoes it grows in sub-zero climates it's got no natural enemies in the uk but in particular that prevents it from growing people like i say have, have tried to burn it <laughs> they just can't get rid of it however in uh, on the other side of that apparently it's really tasty it tastes a bit like rhubarb and some restaurants use it oh, I actually in, didn't, i did not know yeah, that some restaurants use it in uh, in recipes and it tastes is apparently very similar to rhubarb and in japan apparently it's used as a painkiller oh i mean um, we should probably mention that one of the reasons why it's um also bad beyond the destruction to human infrastructure is that it grows so rapidly and densely yeah. that it essentially shades all the other yeah, plants. Yeah, it pretty much wipes out any kind of flora and yeah. fauna that's underneath it. So, And so if you've got, because it's often found in riverbanks and things like that, if you um, need like a nice diverse range of flora, 
to support the support the fauna. Um, it just it dominates. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, in fact, I'm one of I've done, I've got two examples, and one of them is an is another plant that does a similar thing. Is it Himalayan balsam? No, it's not. You really wanted to get that in, didn't you? Himalayan balsam. <laughs> Himalayan balsam is another yeah another invasive one that found on riverbanks. Just that, so that you know, he was using Himalayan balsam in our sound check earlier on. Yeah, so it's just a, <laughs> it's just a really good. I like the I like the, the word, word, isn't it? Balsam. And it also sets me up for a perfect second one of the episode plug for the river stuff but i'll do that later on <laughs> i'm going to talk about the ring-necked parakeet yeah do which that. people um also known as the rose-ringed parakeet and it's uh, the uk's most abundant naturalized parrot who'd have thought we'd have a tropical parrot that's actually now naturalized in the uk it's mostly has to be said in london it's a well-known resident in greater london actually and it's, it roosts in large flocks and um, communally in London, and its population has been increasing steadily. And uh, although you think it's, you know, it's a bird that survives in arid um, and humid tropical environments, it's very capable of uh, tolerating our climate. I have actually seen two in Southampton. Well, interestingly, and I didn't realise... Um, at the time, I was watching a fantastic film, if you get a chance to watch it, by Hamza Yassin, who's a, um, a wildlife cameraman. He did a brilliant programme recently on BBC where he was filming, I think he selected five birds of prey and he was showing how he spent time filming them. And one of them was a peregrine falcon and peregrines uh, roost and are quite active in cities. I think you saw some nesting in Chichester at yes, the time. Yes, Chichester um, Cathedral. And they're quite they're quite um widespread in London. And there was a bridge in there's a bridge in I can't remember what part of London it was, and these peregrines were had a nest up in a, a building quite close to this bridge. And this male peregrine loved when it caught something, particularly obviously a bird, it would take it to this little um this little ledge on the side of a bridge where it would pluck the bird before it took it off to feed to its chicks so it would had it had this little prepping spot, dinner prepping dinner and this particular bit of film um of this peregrine in london it had caught a ring-necked parakeet and was on the side of this bridge plucking green feathers from this poor parrot to then obviously go and feed to its chicks so i was watching that thinking and i actually remember saying to your mum it's caught a parrot <laughs> Have you not seen them? And I, I, I haven't actually seen oh, have them. You not? No, I haven't seen them in the live. I know that people have yeah, done I've films, and obviously on my Instagram page, people have posted. The yeah, old, I've seen them in London. Um, obviously, I've just mentioned I saw them in Southampton. I've yeah. always associated them with London, and I, I was walking through um, actually with my partner and her dad, and I was just like, "It's a parrot! Yeah. <laughs> it's a well, parrot!" In obviously, the they're found. If they're going to be found, it's in the south of yeah. England because of it's, the temperature is slightly more temperate down here, um, but. At the moment, they're not being they're not being uh, really perceived as an invasive species, but they could be. Um, they are a potential threat to some of our birds, such as woodpeckers and starlings and nuthatches, because they like to uh, they like to nest in holes in trees. Right. So, so they it's a are, resource competition. There's a bit of a competition, and also a bit of a there's a bit of a. Um, there's a bit of a concern of the effect on our native fauna. They love fruit, so they have, our fruit growers, our local fruit growers, are a being raided bit concerned by, by the effect that they're. But it's having. not classed as invasive yet. Not at the moment. They're, Interesting. The RSPB are saying 
At the moment, there's no need for culling, but it's definitely something that the, a species that they are yeah. monitoring because their population is now established and it is definitely and growing. It could, well, then, and it could have a, a, an impact yeah, on... Yeah, so it could very much be one of those that we've just mentioned that's not yet invasive, but yeah. may gain that classification later yeah. on. So They are quite nice to see, though. Yeah, in, in, incredible, actually, to it's see... shame, because so many of the non-native species parent. are actually quite pretty. Yes, well, one of the plants i'm going to talk about next anyway if you've got another, you've got one yeah and i think obviously you've just mentioned we, we've just covered the fact that the parakeets are not yet invasive um it was actually quite tricky not picking one that we've already spoken about because I, I would have spoken about signal crayfish um we've actually covered a few invasive uh species already being gray squirrels yes. um japanese knotweed himalayan balsam um <laughs> i'm going to talk about one that is invasive but is not yet has not yet really got a stronghold in the UK. It's, it's a, another European problem. But the reason why I picked it is it's popped up in the news quite a lot this year because it's been found in record numbers this year, and that is the Asian hornet. Yes, I've read quite a lot about that actually. Yeah, I've, I've actually had friends send me pictures saying, "Is this a is this Asian or is it a European hornet?" And actually, each time it has been a European hornet. But yeah, they're not really firmly established in the UK, but they are the one that we're really looking out for because we're, we're thinking that they could be quite a problem. So they were accidentally brought to France in 2004 uh, through a shipment of goods, I believe, um, from East Asia. And since arriving in France, they have really spread quite rapidly and become quite a problem. A problem with the Asian hornet is it's an absolutely voracious predator of bees and other important pollinating insects, but particularly bees. And so, obviously, from a human point of view, honey production, but from an ecological point of view, bees are such vital pollinators, um, which, again, to be fair, is also a human problem because they pollinate a lot of our crops. But yeah. beyond the human side, they pollinate a lot of plants that are important for other species. And, yeah, these hornets just, just love a tasty bee and really will decimate the bee population. Um is is estimated to have potentially cost France thirty point eight million euros per year in bee colony losses. Wow! So just sort of to put a number on the the actual decimation that they can cause. Um, interestingly, actually, because in, the the way that they are managed is if you find a nest, it is essentially reported to the necessary um, authorities, and that that nest is just destroyed. Um, However, there's been new advice in France to actually maybe leave nests if it's nearly winter because it's been found that some birds will feed on their grubs. So oh, as a okay. cheaper, almost sort of more natural control. Yeah. If Obviously, if it's midsummer, then, then maybe not. But when they go sort of semi-dormant over winter, there are birds that will actually use it as a food source. So right. that is potentially another way to, to combat it. But where this is relevant to the UK is it's expected that they will become established because a bit like... Pretty much every invasive species, we've spoken particularly about Japanese knotweed, it's very difficult to remove a species entirely once it's here. When we come to the section about what's being done, it's actually a lot cheaper and, and more effective to stop species from ever coming here than it is to eradicate them once they've sort of got their foot in the door. And since 2016, Asian hornets have been recorded every single year in the UK. So they are here. And as I've Have you seen one? No. I, have I don't think I've ever seen one. I've uh, obviously seen hornets. Yeah, but I've, I've only seen European, or yeah. native European yeah. hornet. Um, and as I mentioned 
sort of in the prelude to this case study uh, this year being 2023 they were recorded in their highest number um it was actually 22 cases which now makes 54 sightings since 2016 the majority of which and it's already had a mention today has been in kent um and they reckon that is probably if they're going to have a stronghold anywhere it's probably going to be kent um so at the moment there's a real push for all sightings of Asian hornets to be recorded and very rapid response to removing and essentially killing the colony because trying very hard to stop them from becoming a properly established invasive yeah. species because, I mean, we talk so much, I'm not saying we as, as, a, as a podcast, but we as a society talk so often about trying to save our bees and the decline of insects and this is a, an invasive species that will directly impact our insect populations and our bee colonies they're actually slightly i think you always think of asian hornets as being massive and, and there is the giant asian hornet which i think is the largest wasp in the world it's important to note it's actually not that species it is um commonly also called the yellow-legged hornet i think slightly smaller than the european one um but yes it, it is classed as invasive even though it's not got a proper big population or a well-established population here but it's one to look out for and we'll stick links in the in the show notes for for places to go to when you find invasive species but again it's all i don't want to see it because it's a bad sign but i would quite like to see one. <laughs> maybe i see to go to asia for that um but yeah they are on the rise currently in the uk uh so i'll i'll, I'll leave that one there which is a little little case study of a potential threat on the horizon yeah so that's a that's a fascinating one i've got to be honest i'd quite like to see one as well although but I not in the uk yeah. let's go yeah. to asia yeah see them over there yeah i agree Right, do you want to jump into your other plants? Well, one th- yeah, I've got one here that really surprised me and I didn't even think about it because, you know, many years ago I had a, um, a house with a garden and I, <laughs> I filled my garden full of this particular plant and it is the rhododendron. And the rhododendron, brought in by the Victorians as an ornamental plant, and nobody could have um, imagined just how quickly it not only established but spread and it's colonised um, huge acres of uh, precious native woodland. In particular in Scotland, it's become a massive problem. Scotland's got a oceanic rainforest on the west coast, um, and the rhododendron is present in about 40% of the sites of that, and it threatens trees and lichens and moss. and Lichens. L- Did I say lichens? Lichens. 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 Lichen is like it's definitely lichens. Lichens, lichens. I think I did an Instagram <laughs> post the other day saying, "Is it lichens, lichens?" I don't it liken how is, you say that. Is one, yeah, is one an American? <laughs> I'm going to assume because we say niche lichens, and Americans say lichens. niche. It's I don't know, but it's lichen. <laughs> oh, okay. People anyway, can have an argument about that on social yeah, let's media. Let's not do that. It's uh, lichen. So anyway, it's become um, it's become a massive problem up in Scotland in this very very um, rare and. Precious. precious rainforest up in in Scotland, but it it's um, the problem it, with rhododendrons is a they self seed very quickly, they spread very quickly, and then they form very dense thickets that that shades just about it's a real every recurring theme with these invasive plants. Absolutely, yeah, and it and it pretty much dominates the whole habitat and virtually wipes out any plant life that's trying to live underneath it. It also carries a very particular tree disease that obviously it's um, immune to, but it is really serious. It's called, I'm not sure that I can actually pronounce it, it's called Phytophthora 
Remorum. Sounds like a Harry Potter spell. And it it uh, it the impact it has on bark and foliage, of particularly the larch tree, apparently, is really catastrophic. And hundreds of thousands of trees have been felled because of this uh, disease that the rhododendron has not only brought in but spread across the UK. There's probably there isn't a patch of the UK that hasn't got a rhododendron in it. Funnily enough, Mum and I were where were we walking on Arn, and in amongst actually in amongst the the heather and this beautiful um, heathland that we were walking across, there was wild rhododendron growing out uh, in a, a number of places there because we went crikey, that's rhododendron. So it is it's become a massive problem. The Woodland Trust, I think, spends. 1.25 million oh it's spent 1.25 million in the last five years i mean trying to clear up rhododendron the spread of rhododendron. it's always i think it's always interesting when you can put that financial figure to an invasive species because yeah. again we always look at it as the from the eco- ecological point of view where we've lost our red squirrels yeah. or we've lost our white claw crayfish you don't actually think about the economical impact it no you have. don't and of course you can walk into any garden centre in the country and find a massive road of yeah. plants to buy and like I say I filled my garden full of them they are stunningly so it's all beautiful fault, really. um, you know were you one of your favourite places where did you um, where did you propose to your fiance? no no I tried to propose ah. in uh, Exbury, they had shut for the winter in so the new forest which has some of the most famous fantastic well. and famous rhododendron yeah. that was the, that was the intended spot but it yeah. ended up just being okay. in so ornamental they are they are widespread yeah. and a real problem i think it's when when we talk about these species that end up growing especially this is a plant one um a plant specific problem when they start growing in such densities that it wipes out the yeah potential for other vegetation to grow it's another nice example of what happens when the species haven't evolved together because there will be habitats in the world where rhododendron coexist with species that have evolved with it i imagine i don't know but i would have i would expect because there's no country that's dominated by only rhododendron but in the uk our ecosystems just aren't equipped to deal with these that's a really good example of a of a species that's come in has thrived has spread has uh Outcompeted effectively the flora and fauna underneath it, and spread a disease as well. So yeah. that's brought a number of criteria in with it that has been a massive threat to the native species. And it's all species. because it's a pretty plant, and we want it in plant. our gardens. Well, of course, back in Victorian times, we brought in an Everything. enormous amount from all over the world. Yeah. Victorian seed hunters and plant hunters and birds as well. And birds, of um, course, and even things and exotic animals, yeah, deer, um, yeah. deer species. What was that? The munch? Yeah, one? I don't know if that was Victorian actually. Um, but yes, like the Victorians were very well known for essentially collecting pretty species, whether plants or animals. Yeah, um, and some like the ring-necked parakeet were brought in, and actually they, you know, they obviously not native, they escaped. Yeah, you know, they escaped the collections, um, and that's invariably how it does happen. So uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, it really um, is, and each of these species could have been an episode, and and so it's really it was really difficult to pick which ones to talk about without this becoming a four-hour. I guess what we ought to do now, because we've highlighted quite a few and we've talked about the you know, problems, what they are and the problems, is what what can we do? Yes. And what are our organisations doing to, to try and prevent yeah, and the so, spread of non-native species? Obviously, I mentioned earlier um, that it's generally cheaper to prevent invasive species rather than trying to fight them once they're here. So 
very hard to stop them coming over. Well, yeah, it is. And it, especially with how sort of international the world is now with trade and, and everything. And we're, we're doing more. There's probably more. Well, not probably. There's definitely more ships arriving yeah. in ports. And we holiday before. more than yeah. ever before all over the world, don't but, we? And obviously, we've mentioned a few that have already, <laughs> they're very firmly established in this country. It is too late to prevent them from arriving. But there are lots of species out there that we still need to prevent from ever getting here. Yeah. And sadly, I say sadly because they're so woefully <laughs> effective. This is where the government has to play a role. Um, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so this is where essentially what you need is you need strong and effective biosecurity policies. And that is identifying how the species arrive and putting in measures to prevent them from arriving. And so it's essentially just putting in regulations for when ships arrive, what they can and can't do import. Essentially, just whenever people are coming across, and that's not just for the UK, but in general, especially as an island, you would think we have quite a good barrier to stop invasive species. So the main way of things being introduced is going to be directly with people um, is putting in those regulations. And that's not only for accidental sort of transportation in goods, but also for people who are doing things like garden um, garden centres or animal collectors there needs to be the regulations about what can be brought in and what can't be brought in and sadly that has to come from a from a government they are the ones who can enforce these policies whether it's yeah you can't bring that species in for your garden center don't doesn't matter how pretty or how financially beneficial it might be for for that industry it can't come in because it will decimate and it's the same because that's the whole thing isn't it to control an invasive species you've got to understand the behavior of that species and what impact it's going to have so that monitoring it's it's where that foresight is really needed obviously i mentioned it all comes down to data as well but i mentioned things like like the cane toad which was brought over to australia for what should have been a good purpose and there was just there should have been the foresight to be like, actually, yeah. look at the impact it could have. There's no natural predators yeah. for it, X, Y, and Z. They fully understood the behaviour yeah. of that species before they brought it in. Um, and it's the Which same... It's staggering that they didn't. Yeah, but it's the same with, like I say, it might be a almost, like, I call it like a hobbyist thing, whether it's from plants or think of how many exotic animals people keep nowadays. It's, and the exotic industry also has plants that they put in their terrariums and it's very difficult to stop seeds from escaping all sorts of you've got to just think about all of these possible ways for them escaping we've mentioned multiple species that have been released accidentally by escaping from zoos or private collections and so is having that regulation and that monitoring and those policies in place to essentially stop species from entering at all um the other little bit concerning isn't it if it's no, I'm not going to say. It. <laughs> I mean, I've already I'm said it. I'm not going to say. It. You, um, I'm not going to repeat it. The other, the other side is obviously dealing with those that are already here. And again, this is often a government thing, but lots of uh, charities also play a role, or lots of other organisations. But it's actually responding quickly and efficiently and effectively to the new but not yet established species. So, for example, the Asian hornet, which is trying very hard to establish itself here. It needs a lot of monitoring and it needs quick response so that it can't gain that foothold. I'll give you an example of that. Um, hedgehogs. Hedgehogs on a, on an island in just off the Scottish coast. It's called, I don't know how to pronounce it, U-I-S-T, Weast, Eust, I don't know how it's pronounced. Um, but hedgehogs had to be removed and removed back to the mainland. They were introduced there in 1970s and began eating wild bird eggs. Oh. At an alarming rate, 
Um, and then they were deemed, because of that, they Invasive. suddenly realised it was monitored and they seemed harmless, but when they started to monitor the reason why the bird population was decreasing, it came down to hedgehogs eating wild bird eggs. So they were then deemed an invasive species and actually had to be removed yeah. and translocated back to the mainland. So there's a good yeah, example. Yeah, so that's, that's actually a good example of where it was quick and effective. Absolutely. And so you need, this is another, I mean, we've mentioned it, I think in every episode, the importance of monitoring, yeah. just being aware of what's happening yeah. in our habitats and ecosystems. But um, it's not only that monitoring, it's actually then taking action, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, and quickly. Yeah. Because once they are, hedgehogs probably aren't quite so bad. They're not rapid, are they? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a lot harder to track down a wasp. Yes. Um, so yeah, yeah. The, the effective uh, effective management, essentially. Um, and so obviously I've spoken about responding quickly to those that aren't fully established. And now it's also just providing the funding and the resources to deal with those that are already firmly uh, part of our ecosystem now and causing damage like Japanese knotweed is... It needs to be removed. It's not easy, so you need the funding and the resources. Yeah, and there are obviously things that we can do as well. Yes. So if we see, for example, if we see an Asian hornet or we think we've seen an Asian hornet, then you need to report, report it. it. Um, there are lots of things people can do, actually. I've got, got a nice little list of individual actions. Um, the A bit like stop, drop and roll for the invasive species. It's check, clean, dry, which is especially important if you're... I don't know, somebody who enjoys water sports, whether it's paddleboarding, kayaking, if you're fishing out on a boat, if you just have a boat for recreational purposes, it's very easy for plant materials to sort yeah. of tangle up. If you think of like the fins of a paddleboard yeah. or in your um, actual paddle for a kayak, anything like that, or the bottom of your boat, is to make sure that if you're leaving one area and going somewhere else, if you take your paddleboard, your kayak home, and then you might go into a different river, a different part of the sea, to make sure that any foliage or plant material or anything that's attached is removed preferably in the area that you are actually uh, out and about on that you clean your equipment thoroughly and that you dry it so that and that can be the same for your you know when you're walking through yeah, your woodland boots. when you're hiking or camping or all of those things so if you so few of us will think of you know we've just finished a hike okay we'll take our boots home and bang them out once yeah. we get home yeah if, if you're carrying plant material you might not even realize you've just got a couple of seeds of an invasive well, species we were talking about spores in yeah. the air and spores that you know that cause this ash die back that's all just spores that you can pick up on the you know on the woodland floor yeah. and what have you so and so it's just making sure that your personal equipment is it's saying even like you mentioned clothing even vehicles yeah. things like your, your car tires everything yeah. like that just to try and make sure you're not harboring any potential species and moving them about and uh, sort of exaggerating the problem um, you've mentioned rhododendron, responsibly managing and disposing of non-native plants in your garden so they can't spread. Preferably have native plants, but if you do have non-native plants, make yes, sure I'm, you're responsible. I'm gradually trying to reorganise my garden for native species because yeah. uh, I planted a cotoneaster and apparently the cotoneaster is an invasive species, which I didn't realise. So, so doing the a research. A bit of education yeah. um, and a bit of learning. Um, and there are plenty of actually there's plenty of resources about what particularly if, if you're planting your garden up there's whole lists um the royal horticultural society's got whole lists of of uh plants that are potentially invasive 
um, ones to avoid. So, so you can get all of so this information. It's another example where gardeners have a real role to play. And the garden centres, as we just talked about, are full of rhododendrons yeah. and full of invasive species that you really shouldn't be going near. So, And then you've mentioned reporting uh, suspected sightings. I think there's actually a specific one, uh, webpage for the Asian Hornet, which I will link. But also there's a new app slash website thing called INNS Mapper, and that is Invasive Non-Native Species Mapper. And it's basically... Just that, it's a, it's a place to record sightings, surveys and management for invasive non-native species in England, Wales and Scotland. It's actually quite new um, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it's, it's a place where if you spot, and they've got loads of guides about what are invasive species and how to use the app and everything like that, but it's a, it is essentially a place to monitor for people, the public, to play a role in this and, and upload their sightings. Yeah, there's uh, another one called iRecord. And um, or that, I record is or I record. Yeah, it's, it's actually said not just for non-native. I, re- I, I record. record. I record. I record that species. <laughs> I record. I record. Um, and that actually, if you if you uh, enter a record on that, um, then it enters a national database. Yeah, and no, I will so, actually. I mean, I record is brilliant. Just in general, if, if anybody sort of as an amateur naturalist, if you're competent and, and enjoy trying to identify species, I used to do it for spiders. Um, and you essentially try and identify what you found in your garden or in, that, in, a, in a nature reserve, for example. You upload pictures and the little geotag and everything, and then it gets sent off to the local expert of that group, yeah. so the local spider yeah. expert in my case, and they will try and confirm it. And then, like you say, it becomes part of this massive database. Yeah. And so if you look for any species, if you Google it on, on iRecord, it... Um, it will show you like where all the sightings are that and the distribution and it's, yeah, and it's great actually, it's a database that, that researchers and conservationists yeah. sort of drop into all of the time. Yeah, so, so even aside from invasive species, it's an incredible yeah. resource and quite good fun to, to contribute yeah. to if you fancy it. Um, one yeah, other so thing, that's I record, <laughs> I record, <laughs> <Just> <laughs> and I, I promised it earlier in the episode, and so I am just going to slip in. I know you're looking at the time, and I know we've been chatting for for a while. I'm just going to slip in one last. This might be our longest episode, actually. And there we were saying it'd be a short yeah. one. Uh, I was going to slip in one last Rivers Trust plug, but it's actually not just for the Rivers Trust. It's for all of these charitable organisations. If you really want to, I know, get your boots wet and muddy and go out and have a physical impact, a lot of the volunteering opportunities are removing these species. Yeah. And so the reason why I brought up Himalayan balsam is a lot of Rivers Trust volunteers are out balsam bashing, as it's called, and that is removing that plant. Yeah. But Woodland Trust and all sorts well, of other... Yeah, do I've it got as that well. Wildlife Trust and Conservation, your local conservation societies, they all do various uh, little projects yeah. where they're going to remove something they're, they're typically um, just called, like your local action group yeah you can find a there are plenty of them. find a group in your area and go and actually have a direct physical impact on the invasive species problem and yeah. try and remove them yeah uh, so that's another we always like to give a little yeah. action no, that's a, um, that's a nice little action and it's a fun way to support uh, that you can take a local organization yeah. so given the fact this is probably our longest episode we'll wrap it up rapidly <laughs> I like that. That's a, um, which we're famously not very good at. No, we're not very good at it. Um, actually, we haven't rambled on too much, have we? I don't think so. So, summary. Invasive species are non-native species that are causing harm to wildlife, ecosystems, human economy and health. Very difficult to get rid of. There's a lot of them. And hopefully you found this interesting. That's going to be I my... Found it, this, I found this one in particular really, really interesting to research. Something because a bit I different. learned things, like, let's say rhododendrons, I'd never... I never knew that, that they were so invasive and causing a real problem. 
so it's been a it's been a really interesting one to, to research. research yeah and uh hope you've, hope you've enjoyed it and we will go now honestly yeah we'll catch you next time <laughs> thanks right. for listening bye 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 <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.